This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. The Think Tank. Oh, really interesting show this week. Uh, we have uh, a uh, look back at a little bit of uh, Americana history, particularly radio history. And I just want to warn you uh, that you are tuned into KTAR and you're about to hear a station ID for a station other than KTAR. Uh, you are in the right place. Do not change your, uh, your dial position. You are on KTR. Run it. This is WBCN in Boston. I will tell you so rare. There wasn't any radio station at all that played any of this kind of music. I'm gonna tell you so, baby. It was clearly ours. Older people didn't like it, didn't understand it. Well, we were all hippies. We all had long hair. With 240,000 students in Boston, the best chance I had to pay the rent on this thing was uh, to play rock music. For the first time, there was an outlet for music like this on the radio. You'd hear some Muddy, you'd hear some Grateful Dead. Jefferson Airplane, Steve Miller Band, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and Donovan. Jimi Hendrix. Hello, Bruce Springsteen. We're on the air? Yeah, we're on the air. Hey! (laughs) This is my very first time on radio, and I want to say hello to my mother who lives in California. Hi, Mom. You were not going to hear this music anywhere except at WBCN. Bill Lichtenstein is our guest today. You were there. I was there. I was there. How are you today? I'm great. Uh, tell us about WBCN. I, I, I think the story is you, you, you became a staffer there at age 14. I, I was in an alternative educational program in the uh, uh, Boston area, and we were told to go get a volunteer job uh, one day a week when I was in the ninth grade, 14 years old, and I ended up volunteering at this newly arrived a radio station that just really innovated everything from how radio sounded, the kind of music it played, to, um, you know, its relationship with its listeners. Uh, and uh, soon after was covering news and later uh, had my own weekly radio show. Time bound us for it. Uh, when was this? What year? This was in 1970. 1970. Station started right around then? Uh, 60, late, uh, mid-68. 68. Okay, a little bit about the time period. We have, a, we have another clip from your promo that we want to play for you. This is just, uh, it'll give you a little bit of sense of, the, of what that period is like. Boston was in the grips of counterculture, students trying to find new ways of living, new ways of being. This You're listening to WBCN. FM 104.1 in Boston. The response from people was so great because we were sort of treating radio not as a performance, but as a relationship with our listeners. In the news right now, police in Boston got orders this morning to halt an anti-war demonstration about 30 Vietnam veterans. The Vietnam War hung over everything. Boston was... A battleground of ideas. Henry Kissinger taught at Harvard. 250,000 college students, most of whom by then had turned against the war. Nixon was the personification of American evil. The FBI came to the house one morning. They came in. All of them had their guns drawn. It was an autumn of chaos. That was the era. Bill, you were there. What's it like to work there in that period? 
It, well, it was sort of like being at the epicenter of the storm because not only was all of this going on in Boston with 250,000 college students, but BCN was sort of the glue that held the whole thing together. It was before, obviously, the Internet and cell phones, and, and it was the way people learned or found out what was going on. But it also, more importantly, as Tommy Hadges, one of the announcers, said in that clip, it wasn't just a performance. It was radio as a relationship with its listeners. And it's not so unusual these days to have that kind of, uh, you know, radio where, where, say, public radio encourages people to talk back and tell us what you think. And But but this was before NPR. This was before public radio. And the idea that, that there was a two-way conversation going on with listeners who could call up and, and ask, you know, about things that were important to them or get their notices on the air. And it was a very new kind of radio. So talk, talk to me, what, 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 what kinds of stuff did you do at the station? Um, initially, I, I answered what was called the listener line, which was the, um, it was sort of the Google of its day. We literally would tell people, uh, whatever your issue is, uh, call us. If you've got a roommate who's taking too much LSD, you're trying to find a, a ride to San Francisco, uh, you want to know what the best pizza parlor in Boston is that's delivering at 2 in the morning, call us. And it's you know, So the Google of its day. <laughs> right. And, and we would sit there and, and we had this you know enormous library of books and people would call. And it really, in many cases, was the first place people would call if they if they had a problem. It grew out of the fact that as the station got more and more popular, more and more people were calling with really important questions. Like, I just got my draft notice. What do I do? Was was one of the most important ones. And so they set up this line to answer calls. And I was on the listener line initially. And then I was asked to go cover a demonstration one day. Uh, Danny Schechter who you heard in that clip, gave me a tape recorder and said, go up the street to the Boston Police Department where there was a demonstration about the killing of this Black Panther, Fred Hampton. And and, and this was the perfect question for a 14-year-old covering his first news story. He said, turn on the tape recorder and say, why are you here? <laughs> and so I came back and he showed me how to edit the material. And soon after, I was producing uh, news stories and eventually got my own show. One other radical development. They actually put women on the air for the first time. Women, just jockeys, not just in the news department. It was like transformative. Giving a voice for the first time to out open gay people on the radio. I don't know which disc jockey it was, but when they said, this is the American Revolution, you know, and you felt that they meant it. We were trying to create something that hadn't existed before. It was the internet of its day. Independence, having people make up their own minds as to what to play, what to say. Stuff like that on the radio. Wow, amazing. We had the real thing. WBCN in Boston. Interesting. It was really the beginning of alternative radio, right? It was. The only thing that came before it, if you wanted to hear rock and roll, was Top 40 radio. There was nothing else before it. In San Francisco, they had begun playing uh, rock music on FM, which was a stereo signal without static. And, but, and, uh, and FM and, itself and, was, was kind of new. Most radio back then was AM. Right. And and so there were these stations, it was 
uh, KSAN in San Francisco and WNEW in New York, people listen to. But they played, you know, rock music, but they hired professional announcers, and so it was sort of a different kind of commercial radio. This was really a group of, of you know, college kids, none of whom had professional training, being encouraged to play, you know, whatever music they wanted. And so it was not unusual to hear anything from, you know, these great blues artists, B.B. King and Muddy Waters, to classical music, to opera, to rock and roll, to, you know, Monty Python. All right. We'll be back talking about this and and talking about the uh, documentary film that you have produced on the station and the era when we return with Bill Lichtenstein in the Think Tank in just a moment. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Bill Lichtenstein talking about his new documentary movie uh, about WBCN and the American Revolution, the one of the 1960s, not of 1776. But uh, we have a clip that uh, that really, I, I think, is a very, very good illustration of what the era is like. It's about it, we, it's called Hippies on the Boston Common. And you'll hear the Boston accent of some of the locals who are really uh uh, very much uh, upset, really, by what they see going on in their before their eyes in their own community. Or if run the use of the Boston Common is a, is a laboratory. They're full of bugs and parasites. If you show them a bar of soap, they'll run the, the hills. I mean, what is going to happen? This is not the same city of Boston that we grew up in. Boston Common was set up originally for the benefit of all the people of Boston. Today, a colony of unwashed, unshaven people have managed to infest that area and desecrate that community by their love-ins, their sit-ins, their smoke-ins, and a few other ins that I wouldn't dare to describe today. We now have a different type of pollution. People pollution. Hippie pollution. The flower people. All I'm asking is for the police department to enforce the regulations. Sound familiar, Bill? Well, that was, you know, 1967. People may either remember or have read about it if they're younger. Uh, you know, it was the explosion of the counterculture, psychedelic, um, you know, music and fashion in San Francisco and in New York. Boston sort of lagged. And by 68, a year later, it really hadn't hit Boston yet. And then in the summer of 68, the hippies arrived on the Boston Common, which is uh, sort of always been sort of the backyard of Beacon Hill, where Boston's blue bloods and aristocracy live. And, and they weren't so fond of having these kids camped out on their backyard, smoking dope and, and living there, really. Um, and so there was a series of clashes. Uh, you know, between the police and these kids. And it's how the movie starts. It sort of sets up what starts off as being kind of a quaint, oh, you know, here's these fun-loving kids there with their guitars and frisbees. And then suddenly the police, you know, are breaking heads with their nightsticks. And and that's really where the generational divide in in Boston started. Um, And those were city councilmen. One of them was a guy named uh, Timothy, who who were very uh, adamant about you know, getting these kids out of there. And they saw it as a temporal thing, like, you know, once they got these hippies off the common, all of this would go away. They saw it as an invasion, no? Oh, yeah. No, no, this was, this was you know, sort of ups- upsetting their 
life. And but when you look at these kids, it's everything that the '60s became was music and drugs and uh, politics and and the beginning of the anti-war movement and uh, free love and and all of that just for a generation that you know was really seeking something different. And perceived very differently as you moved across various neighborhoods uh, in Boston. I have family in South Boston, and and this is an area where this would— South Boston was a Irish and Lithuanian ethnic neighborhood, very traditional— and uh, you, if you walked from there to the Boston Common, you were walking into another world. Yeah, no, there was, you know, Timothy, I think, represented South Boston. That wouldn't surprise uh, me at all. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, I think the city as a whole were, were, you know, sort of getting their first look at the coming youth revolution. Uh, and, of course, you know, in the beginning, was a, it was sort of a cultural revolution, lifestyle, music, and long hair. And then, and then as the war ramped up by 68, 69, 70, it became a political revolution. And one of the arguments the film makes is that that happened largely in Boston, the politicalization of the 60s post-Summer of Love in San Francisco. Summer of Love 67 was largely apolitical. Right, and, and and maintained it as apolitical. There was a clip we, we tried to use in the film and ended up not of the Grateful Dead interviewed in 67 saying, look, we don't want any politics in this thing. This is about peace and love will save the world. And they you know, believed it at the time. And then the East Village in New York became much more co- uh, commercialized. Uh, but Boston became its own thing and really was responsible with Noam Chomsky here and Howard Zinn. And, um, Noam Chomsky you know, uh, is a MIT professor of linguistics, now at the University of Arizona, by the way. Uh, yes, where we interviewed yeah. him, who was very you know involved with the station on the air there. Mm-hmm. But you know, Boston was a real cauldron of uh, of radical. Uh, thought and at the same time Henry Kissinger was teaching at Harvard and you know a lot of stuff went on here that sort of fueled what we think of as the 60s that's never really been uh, written about or covered so that's another contribution I think the film makes. We have a great clip. You mentioned Harvard. There was a there was an occupation of a Harvard building by some students and uh, we have a, a really interesting clip of that. And I came into the offices of the dean of Harvard College, which was occupied, this is before the Occupy movement, occupied by all of these activists smoking dope in the, in the dean's office. And I talked to some of the people from SDS, Harvard SDS. I said, you've got to stop this immediately because this will become the story that you're defacing the university. Get these people out of here right now. So they did. Uh, they got all the students out of there. I said, are the doors locked? They said, yes. I said, good. Let's go into the filing cabinets. So we seal off the offices. And the offices are filled with files. And they're looking through. And what they're looking for is any files that say CIA, Central Intelligence Agency. Any files that say ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps. Any files that say Dow or other major corporations. And we're finding them. And we began to find all kinds of secret documents about from the Pentagon to Harvard, from the CIA to Harvard. Henry Kissinger will be in Saigon next week. He was then a professor at Harvard. And all of this material was there. The university said, we have no contracts with the Central Intelligence Agency. We're finding files that have contracts with the Central Intelligence Agency. So now we're pulling all these papers out. And the question is, what are we going to do with them? 
And so we said, we've got to publish this somehow. How are we going to get this out of here? Meanwhile, the state police surrounded Harvard Yard. And I was in the in the dean's office. We had these little book bags, green bags. And so we filled one with these documents. The, the old mole was down the street. And I took one a student. And we came to the door, the state police on this side of the fence, the activists on this side of the fence. How am I going to get out of here? So I pick a fight with this kid. Let me out of here. I hate this revolution. Look what you're doing to Harvard. You're destroying the whole place. I can't stand it. At which point a cop comes over and says, let this guy leave. And the cop escorts me out, not knowing that in my bag are all these documents. We'll be back with Bill Lichtenstein and talk about this clip and other things in a moment in the think tank. I'm going to tell you about my town. I'm going to tell you big The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're here with Bill Lichtenstein talking about WBCN, one of the first alternative radio stations uh, in the country. Uh, it was in Boston. Bill was a part of that. And uh, we ran over a little bit in the last segment. I overestimated, underestimated the length of the clip, but it was a clip of a uh, student uh, protest in I Harvard uh, dean's office. And uh, and uh, the, the ending clip was where one of the one of the participants uh, figured out how to get the documents out. Uh, who was that, by the way? Do you know who that was? That was Danny Schechter, who became the news dissector of WBCN and really uh, innovated, uh, you know, I think the way radio news was done in a very important way. There there were two, I think, significant things about that. One is uh, people had always said that uh, the Harvard president uh, made a bad decision calling the police onto the campus. This was 68, right? Right. Students took over because just before that at Columbia, they had done the same thing and it had turned into a very violent situation with the police and stuff. And so people always question that judgment. We found at the beginning of an NBC Nightly News broadcast with David Brinkley uh, that there was apparently a press conference, which nobody was aware of at the time, uh, where the president of Harvard said, uh, Nathan Pusey, that the police were called onto campus because Danny and this guy, Michael and Sarah, who was an SDS leader, were going through the confidential documents in, in the dean's office. And they knew what were in those files, which are contracts with the CIA, with major corporations. Uh, Many of which Harvard had denied that it had. If I had right. denied, yeah, absolutely no relationship with the CIA. And here are the contracts. Henry Kissinger's visits to South Vietnam to help while he was a Harvard professor to lay the groundwork for the war in Vietnam. And, and and they were just, you know, they found all these documents. And then this was the moment that they snuck them out in, in a book bag and, and went up the street to an underground newspaper called The Old Mole uh, and published them. The, the other reason it's important is that was a seminal moment. And I think the understanding of the connection between uh, universities, which, you know, had always been involved in some government research, but but not really as a tool of, of weapons industry. Uh, you know, uh, creating uh, war weapons. They, many of them claimed we don't do secret research. Everything we do is right. in the public domain. 
That's the right, scientific and it's all model for everybody. But these were the connection between uh, universities and then these these companies that were focused on the war, like Raytheon and Sylvania at the time, um, and and the U.S. government. And that freeway connection, which had never really been understood or, or written about, suddenly was fully exposed. And you know, it created a lot of discussion about the role of universities in doing war research. And and again, that was another critical. Uh, you know, moment there was a similar, uh, you know, um, opposition to what was going on up the street at MIT at the time as well. Uh, I want to ask you to reflect a little bit on this. Uh, thinking of the anti-war movement in the '60s, that was you know manifest here in in a lot of different ways, and uh, the Bernie Sanders following of today. Do you see parallels? Parallels between I'm sorry I, I missed the between the supporters the the Berniaks the Bernie supporters. I think that um, people are looking for something that is um, apart from the traditional um, mainstream Democratic politics, and and we talk about '68 in the film, which began with uh, first Eugene McCarthy and then Bobby Kennedy uh, on their way to become. Uh, you know, the next president of the United States when Lyndon Johnson said he was not going to run for a second term. And then suddenly, you know, everything that happened uh, and Hubert Humphrey, who, you know, in his day was about as traditional and middle of the road candidate as you could get uh, running for president as a Democrat. He was originally a, he was originally a liberal going back to the 40s. But but he right, basically but he had trying, loyalty to Lyndon Johnson. With, Lyndon Johnson in the war in Vietnam and yeah. exactly and and you know as uh, as somebody says in the film it was hard to see him as a vessel for our hopes and dreams and and you really ended up with almost an identical situation where Eugene McCarthy said you know I think people uh, should not support Humphrey let Nixon get elected and and you know it will create a you know an environment where uh, you know uh, more more liberal forces will win the next time around. That sounds like like Bernie Sanders in 2016. (laughs) Well, there were. It was interesting because Tom Hayden, who was, you know, a very outspoken, uh, you know, radical in those days, later became a state senator in California, but was part of the Chicago 8, wrote an article in The Nation uh, before the last presidential election, sort of admitting that maybe their judgment wasn't so good back then and saying, you know, uh, offering his support for Hillary Clinton, saying, you know, no matter who it is, we're going to have to hold their feet to the fire. And it's more important who can get elected than somebody who's like the perfect you know, candidate. But I think all of these issues certainly have the parallel back then, very much so. And you can see it in these discussions about Bernie and uh, and Biden right now. It's yeah, it's striking. And I, I wonder if that's a difference between, a, I don't know, a 20 year old Tom Hayden and a 70 year old Tom Hayden. I, I think so. I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, you know, sort of acclimating oneself to how the system works versus, you know, this is what we want and we want it now. And certainly that was the now generation. Well, you know? and, well, aren't they all? <laughs> I mean, is is that a generation or is that an age thing? I mean, Tom well, Hayden, who spent time in the legislature, you know, having to settle for half a loaf to get anything done. 
Well, you suddenly know, I, I think there was a sense that not just what people wanted, but the revolution was at hand and that soon everything would change and that we were on the verge of this, you know, seismic change. And in a lot of ways, if you look at, you know, the role of women, uh, the role in, in acceptance of gay and lesbian people, uh, attitudes about the, the war and the environment. And um, I think a lot of things really did change radically, but there really was a sense that everything was about to change uh, as part of some great revolution in those days. And, and people really felt it, you know. I wonder a lot of it. A lot of it changed, but a lot of it changed evolutionary. For example, you talk about women in the workforce. Uh, that went up about one percent a year, but it went up one percent a year for forty years. Well, it did, that's the, revolution. The, the, the section you mentioned in the film, which is, I and, I and I thought it was important, especially for for young people to know that in those days, not so long ago, uh, it was just forbidden for women to be on the radio. In fact. We have uh, one of the talk masters in Boston, Jerry Williams, going on the air to denounce WBCN putting women on the air saying they have high-pitched voices that are not suitable for radio. And, and They don't sound know, authoritative. They, they just, yeah, no, they sound annoying and they don't sound authoritative. And those that try to sound authoritative are, are even more annoying. Yeah, yeah, you can't win. You can't win. Yeah. <laughs> So, no, it was, um, you know, it was, I think that was a very, um, you know, it was a tipping point in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And it took a while for things to happen after that. But I think those few years, just uh, so much changed and so much of it, um, you know, uh, was sort of against the, um, the prism of, of WBCN. It's hard for me not to see a lot of parallels here. It's sort of the hindsight of a lifetime. Uh, that, uh -huh. that, that the youth is always impatient. We were, um, you know, the the revolution is coming tomorrow, <laughs> um, and and this, uh, you know, the Sanders uh, platform. You know, we're going to get free this and free that, and uh, and it's all now. It's all immediate. And somebody suggests that maybe you can only have half or we can do something a little bit more moderate. It's the temptation is to reject that. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's, you know, that's sort of where the rubber meets the road in this sort of Bernie versus the establishment. But I think, that, you know, the other question that the film looks at is how media can help facilitate social change and, and the role that was played. And interestingly, you know, BCN had all this equipment and effort to reach, you know, maybe 200,000 people at any one time, whereas now most high school kids have a cell phone that you can reach through Facebook or through YouTube, a half billion people. And yet, you know, it's how do you use that media to, to help facilitate change. And I think that's one of the things we're trying to show with this film is how in the days before cell phones and the internet, you know, media was a very powerful force. We'll be back with Bill Lichtenstein in just a moment, and we'll conclude this discussion about uh, the 60s, WBCN, and the Second American Revolution. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're here with filmmaker and long-term journalist Bill Lichtenstein talking about the WBCN phenomena, a renegade underground and alternative uh, radio station in Boston in the 60s and 70s. And uh, how long did that stay? How long did the station go on? 
Well, this, this this era of the station we cover in the film went from 68 to 74, and that's where this part of the story ends. And then the station was on the air till 2009, and then CBS, which owned it, took it off the air. Okay. Uh, I have a couple of clips that I think are kind of fun people would enjoy uh, hearing. Context to this one is you may recognize the voice. It's Jane Fonda. She was actually covering the Watergate hearings for you. I have a little short clip of that you'll find interesting. Charles Colson was a CIA agent? Yes. This, this memo, uh, which is uh, it was a confidential memo, but what hasn't appeared in, in the paper, as far as I know, is the fact that, uh, which appears in this document, that Colson is CIA. Uh, Hunt is asking him whether or not during the time in the 50s when he was in Saigon, he was receiving um, uh, information reports, uh, orders through military channels or through his CIA channels. His Colson CIA channels, and Colson says that yes, he was receiving them through CIA channels. We have one other clip, and I want to I want to run that just so we can have the rest of the discussion uninterrupted. The interesting thing about this is, you believe this is, uh, I think, he even acknowledges Bruce Springsteen first time on the radio. Hello, Bruce Springsteen. We're on the air. Yeah, we're on the air. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, is the tube mic all right? Right there? Yeah? Okay, here we go. Uh, take it away, fellas. One and a two and... <laughs> Those sorts of appearances and the spontaneous just showing up in the studio, they were really magical moments. This is my very first time on radio, and I want to say hello to my mother who lives in California. Hi, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's do uh... Well, I stood stone like at midnight, suspended in my masquerade, and I combed my hair, it looked just right, and commanded the night brigade. New Jersey, New York was not a problem, but spreading out from there was really tough for them at the time. Don't you want to say a word or two about Asbury Park, New Jersey? Uh, I've been trying to get out of there for 20 years. (laughs) I think that he really appreciated the fact that BCN was willing to be so supportive. I really really do want to thank WBCN and Maxine because um, when we first came here, when we first came to Boston, we played uh, played at Oliver's to about 10 or 20 people. And now must be damn 50 people in the place. <laughs> <laughs> well, the power uh, of media is just overwhelming. <laughs> but I want to thank you very much. Let you know that we really appreciate it because we really do. Springsteen playing to 50 people. That kind of dates it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, it was, you know, but he was very sincere about it. And then uh, what happens after that is the famous uh, opening act uh, for Bonnie Raitt, uh, which we have the actual tape of and, and images of the night that John Landau, who became his manager, wrote the review saying, I've seen the future of rock and roll. And you can actually see and hear that moment. It's pretty amazing. Uh, but, you know, the, you know, Boston was a real incubator for both local acts from Boston, Aerosmith and the Cars and others, but also bands, you know, that that came through here. And one of the things BCN did was really champion bands that were unsigned or or new or, you know, um, as part of its mission in a way that I think was unusual in those days and, and still is. 
Well, if you get people early enough, you just have to call them right, and it sounds like you did that. I have a, I have a friend who was in the area at the time who booked Joan, Be- Joan Baez for 50 bucks. Of course, she was singing for free in Harvard Square at the time. She was. We have a tape of she was a sophomore at BU, Boston University, and a roommate of a woman named Betsy Siggins who ran Club 47. And there's a tape of her from like 1963 or 4 on the Harvard radio station, and she just opens her mouth, and it's just like angel voice. It's just it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about how you, you this you put together this film. This uh, this you had to, some serious archival work to pull this together. Well, there were no archives at the station, and but one thing that happened when people would tape uh, programs or, or just even just whatever was on the radio for a couple hours would tape it off the air. Uh, and so when we put the word out, we got hundreds and hundreds of uh, audio tapes, and then a number of the leading photographers from that era gave us access to their photos, and we found a few uh, archives of local news material, but it really was largely a a search for archives and a search not just for one photo or one piece of music, but once we would find an image, we'd go and look for the audio of it, or if we found the audio, we'd go looking for the images, and, um, you know, and so really, it took a while until we had the archives, and then we did the interviews, uh, in many cases, showing that material to the people we were interviewing, so it all sort of fits together seamlessly. You had elements of crowdfunding to put this to pay for this, did you not? It was almost all crowdfunded um, through Kickstarter and then a thing called Seed and Spark. Um, So, you know, in the spirit of BCN, it really was a truly independent production, which also, you know, has given us uh, the, the rights now to have it and to distribute it. One of the things we're doing is we're showing it around the country to benefit local community uh, radio stations, and also uh, it's in theaters and also other places around the country will be coming to Phoenix uh, sometime soon. So, yeah, no, we're, we're happy to get it out there. Uh, widely acclaimed. I see some of the, some of the kudos that you've gotten uh, from for a wide variety of reviewers. Uh, pretty, uh, pretty positive language there. Yeah, no, the uh, uh, Ty Burr, the... Uh, Pulitzer-nominated film critic for the Boston Sunday Globe wrote, it was the first review I think we got, I watched the movie with awe, and I thought, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> so people really, I think because it's they're trying to sort out in their own minds, especially people who lived through the 60s or who have heard about it from their parents or relatives or friends, um, you know, what happened? Why did this uh, you know, imperative for young people to change the world, to get out in the streets and, and, and really do what they could to change things, sort of what's happened. And especially, um, you know, in this point in time, you know, what would be needed to kind of refuel that kind of a movement. Yeah, my take is that you're using the, the WBCN is kind of the vehicle, but really you, you've done a reflection on an era and brought back the, yeah. the the look and feel. It helps that you were there. Yeah, and I think for a lot of you know young people also who, you know, I think thought the 60s were about uh, smoking dope, going to concerts, and maybe going to a protest where you give the peace sign, that it was a lot more, that it really took a change in culture, in the counterculture, I think, to drive a lot of the changes that were made. And um, I think when you look at groups like the kids in Florida opposing uh, gun violence or uh, uh, Greta Thornburg or you know people who are really able to champion 
um, you know, a large following, I think they get that and they're using the culture and, and the media, uh, you know, to put forward their, their agenda. And that's really ultimately what's going to have to happen if things will change. Hard not to see some parallels there. Yeah, no very direct parallels. Uh, Including the fact that it, 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 a lot of them seem like, uh, you know, sort of David up against Goliath. Well, yeah. And, you know, we were as well at the time, those of us who were, you know, trying to stand up to a military industrial system that was drafting people to go off to the other side of the world and kill people for some cause that we didn't quite understand. And, you know, students getting shot at Kent State. And it was a fairly, um, you know, it was, it was a fairly... Uh, dramatic force we were up against in those days, but I think, and it took it took all of it. It wasn't just the protesting; it was the music and the art and the movies and you know the style. It all sort of came together to make a statement. Okay, the film is called WBCN and the American Revolution, which was the tagline for the station in those days. If you'd like to watch this award-winning documentary film, it is available online. You'd go to www.tinyurl.com slash WBCN2020IV. That's tinyurl.com slash WBCN2020IVY. And uh, you can uh, witness not only the film, but also a post-film event hosted by... Channel 10's recently retired award-winning journalist Steve Kraft, he interviews Bill about the making of the film. We are